and welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. One of the podcasts I love listening to at the moment and have been doing for several years is Transparency. It's hosted by a previous Just Checking In podcast and friend of Vent, Aaron Kimberley. In today's episode, I'll be checking in with his co-host and fellow Aaron on the podcast, Aaron Tarrell. Aaron joined the Gender Dysphoria Alliance shortly after Aaron Kay founded it and together they created the Transparency podcast. As the two Aarons, through interviews with trans, detrans and guests who haven't transitioned but have experienced sex dysphoria they explore this issue and other issues and have a compassionate yet heterodox exploration of the question of trans in this episode we discuss aaron's transition from female to male presenting how and why his experience of transitioning through testosterone changed his sexuality as he was heterosexual before transitioning and is now homosexual post medical transition he went from presenting as erin his former name, to Aaron, which he chose as because of the accent in his state, no one had to change the way they pronounced his name. We discuss how transition was the right choice for him and how he came to that conclusion, and the impact that COVID-19 had on his mental health. We also discuss various issues in the trans conversation right now, including how he got involved in the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, what is known as Rapid Onset Gender Dysphoria, or ROGD, and how it's affected the mental health of largely teenage girls, and his frustration with quote-unquote trans allies claiming to speak on behalf of him with views he does not agree with. So this is how my conversation with Aaron Terrell went. Aaron, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you. We were trying to do this quite a long time ago, but the reasons being that we didn't get to do that. So we are now here. It's great to have the other half of the Transparency podcast on. Listeners might know that I've already interviewed your other pod half, shall we say, Aaron Kimberley. How are you, pal? How are you getting on? I am doing well. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, rescheduling with me so much. <laughs> That's all right, man. Happens a lot, mate. Happens a lot. A lot has happened since we tried to do this pod the first time in your life, in friend of the pod, Aaron Kimberley's life, and the wider conversation around trans in general, I think. So without further ado, are you ready to start the show and get into it? I am. Let's go. Let's kick off your podcast by talking about your mental health journey, Aaron. So I ask all my special guests this question first. Take me back to early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? And using your former name, who's the Erin we meet at this point? Yeah, so yeah, in the way back machine, I was a really happy kid. I don't think I've really had much going on mentally. I mean, I was in a strict disciplinarian household and you know very conservative, and I had the whole gender dysphoria stuff going on, but it, but all in all, like, I was a pretty happy kid. There wasn't much going on that was, <laughs> well, let's say, yeah, there's a lot, a lot of like, kind of trials and tribulations in the, in the home and whatnot. But as far as, like, inner mental health, that was a quite, yeah, in a quite good state, I would say. And like you said, you were in a fairly strict household. You were much more, shall we say, obedient and didn't fight the power like your, <laughs> yeah. your siblings did. Yeah. How did that dynamic play out into your mental health as you navigated early childhood and then into angsty teenage years? Yeah, that, that is correct. Like my, my brother and sister were quite uh, rebellious, quite uh, spirited kids. And I was not, I just wanted to be kind of do my own thing. I didn't want to get much attention to myself. So it was pretty easy for me to just abide by the rules, keep my head down and, you know, be the good kid. I, I'm not sure. And, and that extended into uh, my, my teenage years as well. I was very much follow the rules. I think this kind of extends, is a sort of a personality trait of mine is, is rules are easy to follow for me. Like I know the rule, like, and I have a hard time with gray areas, you know? And so it's very easy to be like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. So I will not do what I'm not supposed to be doing. So like in teenage years with, uh, you know, friends getting into maybe like smoking pot or drinking or whatnot, it's very easy to be like, oh no, I'm not supposed to do that. So I'm just not going to do that. Whereas again, for my, my, my brother and sister, it was much more like, <laughs> they had a, a wider understanding of what they could and could not do 
and it was very much about what what they wanted to do and with our upbringing being very religious also it was very clear to me like i, I was a firm believer in the um the kind of evangelical faith we were raised in and so it was also mm-hmm. I, I had a strong sense that you know god was always watching kind of deal so i took i took that uh, that, that kind of our religious teachings very literally whereas i don't think that my siblings did as much growing up in a conservative christian environment especially in the united states back when you were a child the gay rights movement wasn't really anywhere near what it is today you weren't gay at the time but you did eventually become trans so that was probably even more taboo (laughs) so when you started experiencing dysphoria sex dysphoria gender dysphoria however you want to call it what did that feel like and how did you feel given your family environment well yeah so, so it was very conservative this is in the in the late 80s early 90s I was 15 at the turn of the century. So yeah, basically my, my childhood was the 90s. Yeah, and I, I grew up in what I would now know as a very homophobic family environment of the church and, um, and my, my immediate family and extended family. My dad actually was quite a, quite a hippie type guy. And in contrast with my mom, it was a much more conservative one, much more openly, you know, homosexuals are depraved kind of, kind of talk that would happen. So that, but that wasn't really an issue for me because I didn't really experience, you know, any sort of sexuality either way. I wasn't attracted to boys or girls as a, as a kid, obviously. But I did have this deep feeling that I was supposed to be a boy and that there was a mistake that was made. And I knew that that was a shameful thing to feel. And so I didn't. Well, some of my earliest memories are my mom telling me, you're a girl. God made you a girl. Girls do this. Girls don't do that. You know. A lot of those conversations, but I don't remember what it was that I had been doing that triggered those conversations. So I just remember being like, yeah, just having a lot of shame. Yeah, for feeling like I was, yeah, it was, it was supposed to be a boy or, you know, desperately wanted to be a boy. And I didn't know how to communicate that to anyone other than, well, just not. <laughs> you said to me off air that you couldn't relate to women or other women growing up or you struggled to relate to them. What was it about them that you couldn't relate to? Was it stereotypical female things like makeup or stereotypical female activities, female-centric conversations, or is it something deeper than that? Female-centric conversations, yes. I guess deeper than that in, in that it's, well, interest in general. Like, you know, girls typically, they wanted to play, so like as a kid, play games that involved like creating a family dynamic, like, you know, the whole, you know, playing house and whatnot, and, you know, dolls and creating like this fantasy world that resolves around personal dynamics and usually household and I was never interested in that I was much more interested in being outside playing cops and robbers building forts playing our American version of football I was much I wasn't like a rough and tumble kind of kid like that's one thing that you know now know in the, in the kind of social development and whatnot is uh, boys typically like to do what we call a rough and tumble play like literally like wrestle mm-hmm. each other and stuff I wasn't into anything like that I was not like physically aggressive with my friends which is typical of boys but I, I definitely wasn't interested in the girl typical types of, of playing and engagement and then as I got became a teenager I did go through puberty later than my peers and just the stuff that girls were talking about and the kind of way that they seemed to actually relate with their bodies or, or not feel horror at them like I didn't mm-hmm. know how to connect with them on that level i also didn't have like crushes on boys until much much later and so like the way that they spoke about boys and i don't know just the way that they engaged in general just seemed very foreign to me and i preferred the more yeah, male typical ways of engaging which was less about relationships i guess and more more just about doing stuff and, and so i think that was one of the you know for the reasons why i felt quite alienated from, from girls my age Let's move on to transition now. So you waited until you were around 26 slash 27 years old to do it. So how did that decision crystallize? As I understand, it didn't become a serious consideration until you met another trans man. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. So it was always like this deep desire, this longing, but I, did, I didn't, it never seemed physically possible. It never seemed like anything that was, you know, I could actually do, you know, it was just crazy Jerry Springer type stuff, whereas I was just supposed to... R.I.P. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. R.I.P. <laughs> yeah, right on. <laughs> I forgot, man. Yeah, just like crazy talk show type stuff. And it was like, I was just supposed to be male. Like, it seemed like I don't want to be this third thing. Like, it just seemed so insane, you know? And uh, I think, it's obviously, in a lot of ways, it still is entirely insane. But anyway, yeah, so circa 2010, I met someone uh, at my job who had transitioned. And I was like, oh, wait, wow, this is like a, a real thing. You know, this is a potentiality. And so... I went online and I just started like looking up on the forums and whatnot and like seeing yeah what kind of steps I had to take and what it would all entail. And it was just like, a, say probably within a year of realizing it was a possibility was I 
bring it up to my my doctor. You didn't have any therapy before transitioning, Aaron. How do you look back on that decision? Do you think you would have been helped by it? Do you think if you had had therapy, you would have maybe considered not transitioning or it would have just made you more ready to transition? How do you look back on yeah, that? Yeah, so that's, it's really tough because I don't know what that would have looked like. I know what the therapy climate became a few years after that, which would have been nothing but affirmation and wouldn't have like kind of tried to dig into any kind of root motivators at all. But yeah, I didn't, I didn't have any therapy and I, I think I definitely should have. Just, I think everybody should going into this. So I, I don't really know what that would have looked like or how it would have changed my ultimate decision. I do know though that even if I had kind of talked myself out of it for whatever reason uh, at that time or, or unpacked some of the uh, the reasons why I wanted to pursue that, I don't think ultimately I would have gone down that route just with how pervasive the concept of transition became in society mm-hmm. like four years after that period. I definitely couldn't have avoided it then. I don't think I would have been able to compartmentalize it anymore like I had been for so long once it was all encompassing and, and, uh, and all mm. around me anyway. So it's kind of it's kind of difficult to look back and go, you know, what would that have changed things? I sure. don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine it's, it's hypothetical. So I guess it's a difficult question to answer. But sure, I, I get what you mean. When you have spoken about your transition on other podcasts and on transparency itself, you openly state and you've openly stated often that you never believed going into this that you could actually change sex when you transitioned, right. which is which despite what some might believe is impossible to do. That's just <laughs> biological facts. Right. Why was that important for you to know in your head? before you transition? I, I wasn't thinking that like it's important for me to understand this. It was just, I just understood it. And I think now like looking back, I, I realized that that was a benefit that I had that I think other people didn't who, who went in, you know, fully thinking that they could change sex. And then when obviously, you know, reality, you know, hits you and that all comes crashing down, that's difficult. I, I think, yeah. So I did have a benefit of knowing that like I would always be female. There was no changing that, but I could cosmetically alter my body to appear as much male as possible. And that was enough for me that was worth it for me whereas i know other people going into this are like like it wouldn't have been worth it to be half the thing or or, or just cosmetically give mm. an impression of i had to be that thing and i don't think i ever i mean yes i was you know wished i had been born male but it, like, i don't know it was like i just kind of yeah you know uh, worked with what i what i knew i had like you said you transitioned in 2011 whilst you were still working at your long-term job so you didn't have like a fresh start where you could go in as just aaron yeah. So how did that change from Erin to Aaron come about, first of all? And how did your colleagues react when that happened? Yeah, so that was one of the most nerve-wracking things was, I, you know, we've been in this office. I've been working there for three or four years, I want to say, at the time. So it's like a lot of people that some I know quite well, some are friends, and then others that are just have sort of known me kind of on the periphery for a few years. Don't, but, if, you know, I'm doing going through this, this massive physical change and, you know, going from using, you know, one set of bathrooms to the other set of bathrooms. And it was like I had to give this information to dozens of people who I knew on you know, various, it was just, it was very, very, uh, probably the most difficult part of it all. And because I don't like attention, I don't like being the center of attention. I mean, I've put myself in this advocacy work that kind of, yeah, puts me in a situation where I'm getting a lot of attention, but it's not mm-hmm. my, uh, yeah, it's not something that I've ever really uh, appreciated, but it's not your raison d'etre. No, no, yeah. no, no. <laughs> so, but I was surprised how positive the response was, you know, I got a lot of, you know, just emails of support. You know, a couple of people, they um, were opposed to it, but like, I don't believe in this stuff. And it's like, yeah, that's fair. It's, you, know, you don't have to. But like, it wasn't as big of a deal as I had made it out to be. I mean, most people were just professional about it. And it just kind of became old news pretty quickly, mm-hmm. I'd like to think. So much of my thought process at the time was just, I was just so excited to finally be doing the thing I always wished I could do. And so, you know, looking back now and hearing from the perspectives of like friends and family of people who've transitioned and how how much upset their lives. I'm going in a different direction here because I, I realize now that it wasn't so much my colleagues or I, I didn't put enough weight into into other people's perception of what was happening. You know, as a lot of people say, it's a very selfish time in your life. And yeah. Let's talk about post-transition now because after you transitioned, you went back to university. You got a bachelor's degree. You were a 28-year-old female at the time presenting as male. But because you looked fairly youthful post-transition, your 18-year-old classmates thought you were the same age as them. So was that a surprising self-esteem boost? And uh, were you able to sort of fit in a bit more easily because of that? (laughs) It was. It was definitely um, a surprising self-esteem boost. But at the same time, I did have a moral dilemma about I felt like I was, you know, know, not just like this could go, this could get really morally. It was more like 
I did feel like I was presenting something false, you know, and, and there. So mm -hmm. at the same time, I was eating the ideology that I just have this medical condition and I'm, you know, nobody needs to know anything about my path, you know, like, but at the same time, there was a moral area. Yeah, a, a, an ethical dilemma there that I didn't want to acknowledge was an ethical dilemma, mm -hmm. I'd say. But I did sort of, <laughs> I was very aware that I was living out that fantasy of like people who are like, you know, in their in their late 20s or whatever. And they think, I wish I could go back to high school now. Like now, I, I <laughs> now would be perfect. Like not not just for nefarious reasons, you know, not at all. But like just because because of your confidence, like what you know. And like, yeah, you live the dream. Yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I know how this game works now. I know like I've got all this confidence and, you know, and like, but yeah, so I, I, I was going back as, a, as an undergrad at that age, but looking like I was one of them and so I was mm. definitely sort of a teacher's pet sort of thing because I looked like I was you know a 19 year old but here I was very mm -hmm. very studious and just uh <laughs> yeah so, so the professors were really impressed with me I didn't feel the need to divulge the reality of the situation to them I just sure. you know lapped that up but yeah I got good grades obviously but yeah when there were you know like you know 18 year old girls flirting with me that's when I was like okay this is not you know yeah this yeah, yeah. yeah disclosure <laughs> right, needs to happen right, now yeah yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 But I did. I, I would just kind of remove myself from the situation, you know. I was like, just kind of, yeah, fair yeah, enough, yeah, rather than yeah. Uh, going down any of that route, yeah. Because I didn't want, I didn't want to have to help myself, but I also didn't want to, yeah, yeah, get mm. into yeah bad situation. So when you started presenting as male, I had this conversation with Aaron Kay about the realities of presenting as male that you are now experiencing that fellow men like me would experience and now you got to get into this you saw behind the curtain right. basically so what were some of the social realities that you didn't realize that men experience presenting as one and did anything surprise you about what you had to change or what you had to what stayed the same okay that's another one that's difficult because same thing for the reason that i was you know pushing 30 but i looked like a teenager so there was also that disconnect there but the world is a lot colder i've realized for men than it is for women people kind of default it's not not that you're always seen as a threat but it's just like this is a lot of something that, that i get in hot water with the feminists about is that there is a privilege to being read as female and that is that people are very kind they're very soft <laughs> with you relative to to how people engage with, with men they don't know certainly on one hand i get a lot of empathy for, for the kind of male experience of walking through the world but then when also i realized a lot of kind of like the social sexual relationships that i only experienced from one end i kind of realized how those work from a male end and i, I lost a le another uh, level of, of empathy because i realized wow men are really after one thing all the time but yeah i did realize how sexually driven men were in a way that i didn't understand before i was one of those people who I, I believe that there was just like a blank slate you know that we are yeah we have sex bodies but it doesn't really change our psychology in any way like our psychology is just the result of our uh, social environments yeah but when testosterone hits your system you realize that's not at all the case there's a mm. there's significant differences in just in just uh, yeah male and female patterns of behavior priorities i don't know it entirely obviously i, I don't have the actual I only have a, a taste of, of what that is like in reality for men, but it was enough for me to realize that, yeah, my blank slate theory was entirely garbage. We're going to talk about how testosterone affected you in a second, but another part of this that I wanted to discuss is that, obviously, with male social activities, the way that we engage in conversation with each other is obviously very different from the way women stereotypically engage in yes. conversation with each other. You know, we call it in England right. taking the piss, but Warren Farrell author calls it right. hazing. You know, the idea that men normally, unless we've had a few beers in us, tend to normally conversate through taking the piss right. out of each other. And I think a lot of men sometimes put their banter filter on when a group of women come into a room as opposed to a group of Absolutely. men. How did that change? How did you experience that? Did you have to kind of change pretty quickly? Did you adjust to it very well? Or? Well, so there weren't very many situations where I was in like, there's a certain level of camaraderie that has to be in place, mm. like even in groups of like, so situations where I was entirely in groups of males were more like professional settings or even then... <laughs> Yeah. That's different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your banter level can't right, be as unfiltered. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the, the taking the piss, I was always entirely comfortable with the kind of mockery as a form of endearment, essentially. Like, that was a lot more comfortable to me than the real interpersonal 
complexity yeah, yeah, yes yeah, complexity is <laughs> yeah. also like the depth of like like connecting with the like kind of like emotional connection that women are always trying to engage mm-hmm. with like relating with each other's experience and validating and saying like agreeing with like that's what i never understood like how women just like it's all about yeah validating each other and yeah, yeah. And the words that you use and it was always so uncomfortable and so unnatural for me and so i really i guess i can't really answer this question too thoroughly just because i've always had groups of friends that were were mixed and most of my male friends knew me, obviously, pre-transition. So there haven't been too many scenarios where I'm in a situation where I'm in a group of men in a, in a completely social scenario where they don't know, right? So, yeah, I can't, I can't entirely answer it, but I definitely the stark differences in all male and all female socialization. Yeah, it's, it's very, very clear. And I'm not sure I'm entirely comfortable with either. I'm definitely more comfortable with the male version. But it's still it's still kind of fish out of water kind of thing because it's not something I was raised. Yeah, in, I hear know? you. So yeah, yeah it's, it's that's a tough one. When it comes to your sexuality, Aaron, I mentioned this in the intro, but you were heterosexual female before transitioning. Obviously, you're still a female now, but after being on testosterone, your sexuality changed to homosexual, and you became purely attracted to women, not men. Did that shock you? Just tell me about that process. Because I think that would shock a lot yeah, of my listeners. Yeah, it was quite shocking. I didn't expect it to happen. And I want to say you're, you're using sexuality terms based in sex, and I appreciate that. But your listeners might not yes. follow that, right? I don't know. Yeah, I, yeah I, of course. But, um, but yeah, yeah. so I was entirely opposite sex attracted in that I was only into men or males, uh, and I'm female. So that, yeah, that is heterosexuality, post-transitioning, post-testosterone. I think that's really the important piece there is, well, I guess I'll back up because in FTM communities, there's a lot of talk about shifting sexual orientation, but it usually goes in the opposite direction. It's usually lesbians transitioning to be men, and then suddenly they find themselves attracted to men. Yeah, it's very- Interesting, very, I very didn't common. know that. Yeah. So I, I knew that that would happen, and, but I'd never heard about it going the other direction. And so I thought, oh, it just won't shift. You know, apparently testosterone just makes you mm-hmm. into dudes, which is weird. I don't know why that is, but that's another conversation. But anyway, so I didn't really- expect my sexuality to change in any way other than basically being more horny. What happened was it was just a few weeks on testosterone and I always tell this story because it, it was just seared in my brain because it was just so unexpected. But I was in line at a convenience store and there was a Maxim magazine. I don't know if you have Maxim in the UK, but it's like... Um... The lads magazine sort of died right, out when porn right. and the internet combined. We used to have like Zoo and Nuts magazine, but they kind of went in about 2010 right, okay, okay. maybe. Yeah, so about 2012. Yeah. It's more like... Um, Maxim was more like a, give GQ, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, we got G. Well, we we did have GQ. Yeah, I don't know if it still exists, but definitely okay, used to have okay, a print yeah. version. So yeah. Like, so it's not like like a you know porno mag like Playboy or Penthouse or something like that, but it's, so exactly. gentleman yes, mag, yes, shall yes. we say? That's how yes. it's marketed. Yeah, gentleman <laughs> yes. quarterly, I think it's yeah, called. So that's, yeah, that's what Maxim was. A little bit more low brow, I'd say. I don't know. Anyway, so there's this like woman in lingerie on the cover of, of this month's issue of the magazine, and I remember being aroused by her body and primarily her breasts and i was like well that's that's a surprise like that was not something i'd ever <laughs> that's new <laughs> yeah. That was, I, yeah i was always kind of grossed out about women's bodies because it was like a projection of my own dysphoria i realized later on but yeah so that was really weird because it was like not only had i never experienced sexual attractions based on visuals and that's something that, that men kind of understand implicitly and take for granted like just assume that that's how sexuality is it's like you see something hot you know but like for women that it doesn't work like that but yeah so i I experienced that for the first time and the target was the opposite of what i expected it to be um so both of those things were quite a shock and then it it just continued from there felt like a a, 12 or 13 year old boy i was very much aware of boobs everywhere and it was like (laughs) it was ridiculous (laughs) oh i've been there (laughs) yeah it was very strange yeah because i was like 27 28 years old and yeah it's also interesting is because my yeah because my sexuality shifted to be kind of visually based men were never the target of that i was never really so so it was weird that my sexuality kind of shifted entirely like that it went from being like experienced in a very mm. female typical way which is based on like feel about this person and the dynamics and yeah, the personality yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are they got going right, for them yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it takes a while to find out if you're like it's it's different it's so different yeah so when the style shifted so did the target simultaneously i mean that's a whole, there's a whole right, podcast yeah, yeah. on that mate to be honest yeah. there's a whole podcast on it when it comes to dating before we move on there's a lot of talk in this conversation about is it transphobic to not date someone who's trans etc 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 and there was a very shall we say hot bbc news article that came out quite a while ago which heard from lesbian women who said they've been pressured by trans women into dating them all sorts of kerfuffle went on after it online 
what is your perspective on this as a trans person, uh, dating in general, I mean? Um, yeah, so that's another thing that I think men who, who include trans women in that category, sorry, who should understand that sexual orientation is very much based in the bodies of your... Uh, <laughs> your yes. Target, right? and so, Can't believe it right, needs to be right, said, exactly, but yes. Exactly. <laughs> and so it's, it's primarily upsetting to me that they very much know that, and yet they're pretending that women, that lesbians, should be attracted to them despite the fact that they have in most cases, entirely male bodies. And it's just, yeah, it's just one of those things that really, really frustrates me and really kind of alienates me. One of the things that causes me to peak, as we say, you know, is like this, what I've always interpreted as like, you know, once I grew up and I did transition, that we all have this experience of dysphoria and it's very much based on our bodies and we just need to be, you know, transition to the opposite sex or whatever. And, and you know, we're all downtrodden victims or whatever, you know, the, the, the kind of narrative is within these communities. I, it was just very shocking for these people who are, obviously clearly heterosexual males until five minutes ago insisting that lesbians should sleep with them. It's like, wow, you know what? I guess we're not the good guys, right? Like, but anyway, regarding that article, that wasn't a surprise to me just because I'd already been seeing it for years. I'd already known that that was going on. It was just a case of a lot of people who weren't aware that that was going on are suddenly suddenly aware. And exactly, it's in their exactly face now, yeah. yeah. It all isn't you know, hunky-dory in the, in the rainbow. And that there is this massive conflict of interest, let's say, that one side likes to pretend doesn't exist, while at the same time, <laughs> their behaviour makes it exist constantly. Let's move on to COVID-19, because outside of dysphoria, sex dysphoria, you told me that the first major mental health difficulty you had was caused by COVID. We've kind of come a long way now since this running order. So hopefully in America, it's the same as it is in the UK, where it kind of feels like life is back to normal now. But how did the pandemic affect your mental yes, health? Yes, I mean, life is mostly back to normal for everyone. But I think I think a lot of people still deal with this massive upset to our lives, you know. And I think people are still kind of dealing with the, kind of the psychological ramifications of that massive lifestyle shift. But for me, it was very much a shock that it did impact me as negatively as that it did, because I've always been quite an introverted person. And, you know, my in-office job went to being entirely virtual, which was always like a dream of mine to work from home. And I'm, I'm the kind of person who makes plans and cancels them just because I was like, oh, I don't really feel like it's going to be social right now. So I just didn't expect... And I, still, I mean, I saw my friends on occasion, like from a distance and whatnot, but there's something to being around people on a day-to-day basis that I think we take for granted. We don't realize how much of a benefit that is to our baseline mental health. So, so just being alone or with my partner or my two roommates at the time were basically the only people I saw for months on end. And I, and I realized, I think it was a couple months, three months into COVID, I want to say, that I realized I was quite depressed and it wasn't something that I'd ever experienced before. Yeah, it was just like a lot of things that would normally bring me a lot of joy, just like going for a hike or doing this loop that I did around my, this kind of nature trail around my uh, complex. Nothing changed that kind of really like mood. And I was like, oh wow, okay, this is depression. That's what it is. And, and yeah, I, I, I mean, I want to be, be careful there because it was entirely situational. I definitely resolved fishing as well. Resolved it, I, I'd say. I, yeah, oh wow, fishing. Yeah, I, okay. I, knew that I needed to do something outside that was going to be around other people because I had to be outside, right, to be around other people. And I didn't want it to be really like interpersonal connection because again, I'm not like that. Like I don't want to like sit down and have like an in-depth conversation about how I'm feeling with a friend. Like that wouldn't help me. But I wanted like kind of to peripherally be around people engaging in the same activity. So. Me and a buddy got into fishing, but I ended up mostly going alone. But again, I wasn't alone. I was like, there's other people, you know, on the dock or on the shore that were, you know, like casually doing the same activity with outside. You know, you start talking to people, you know, exchanging tips and whatnot. And it's just like just that simple hobby, I think, of being outside and being around other people, doing the same thing I was doing on a very primal level, you know, good for us to kind of like be around people doing mm-hmm. the same thing we're doing. And, and that's uh, also, I think, why I very much surprised myself in that I, since we have been able to go back to work, I don't work hybrid at all. I don't work from home at all. I do not like it. I go to work every single day and my office is mostly empty, but there are other people there doing the same thing I'm doing. And even if we don't really talk, it's like, I just like being around mm-hmm. people. You like uh, yeah, separation. It's, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. And the people. So, yeah, so, yeah. yeah, COVID definitely was a new experience for me and that I learned something yeah, entirely unexpected about myself is that I do really enjoy being around people a lot more than I, than I ever thought. Let's reflect on your mental health journey, Aaron. So firstly, what has it taught you about yourself? Oh man, I guess I just answered that question. Is, yeah, that, I, that I'm not a, a, I do, I do need to be around people in a, in a 
you know, human company is more valuable, I think, I think than, than a lot of us realized pre-COVID. Yeah, I definitely still identify as an introvert, but you're kind of needing people, even just on a very superficial peripheral way. Introverted maybe, extrovert, maybe. maybe. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and as a final question then, if you could go back and speak to the teenage Erin who felt a lot of shame because of her gender dysphoria, the 26-year-old Erin about to transition, or the Aaron who was struggling with pandemic-induced isolation, what would you say to them knowing what you Ooh, do now? That is such a tough one. Um, I'm, I'm, I so struggle with this, and what would I say to my former self, just because in all instances of life, we're like such different people, I think, based on experiences and, and context. Mm -hmm. And I also think in a lot of ways, exogenous hormones do a lot to your psychology that people don't really talk about. So I think psychologically, I'm a very different person. I am now than I was, obviously all of us are much different people psychologically, and, you know, as adults or in our thirties or whatever than we were as teenagers. But I think more so, you know, an additional uh, psychological shift has happened uh, with the addition of exogenous hormones, but I, I don't know what I would say. Ah, you yeah. can say you don't know. Yeah. That can be an I don't answer really if you want. We've talked all about your mental health journey, Aaron. Let's talk about Gender Dysphoria Alliance, which you got involved with Aaron Kimberly with, and now co host the Transparency Podcast, the very, very good Transparency Podcast, I should say. Why did you get involved, first of all? And what did you want to accomplish with both of them? Ah, thank you for the compliment on the, on the podcast. Yeah, I think we're doing good work there. So basically, for a number of years, I had been really concerned about what I was seeing happening in the trans community. It started around late 2017, I want to say. And I kept waiting for people, like other trans adults, to start talking about what was going on. And this really concerning just floodgates of transitioning young people. And that clearly there was an online culture that was influencing it, which seemed so obvious to me. And I thought it should have been so obvious to every other adult in that space, but apparently it wasn't. And so I kept looking on YouTube and podcast apps for people talking about this and they just weren't. And it was around, let's see here. So it was around 2019, I think I found... Uh, my friend Mars Fernandez, he had a podcast. He's come uh, on the podcast. Great. Oh, Love go. Mars. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yep. yeah. Called Trans And they weren't talking about the trends, but they were at least acknowledging biological realities. And they were talking mm -hmm. about the trans issue in reality-based terms. So I kind of connected with him and some other people. That's kind of my, my introduction. Because he was already kind of clued into like what we now know is gender-critical Twitter. So I, I, I kind of got myself enmeshed in there and found other like-minded trans people in that realm of just people who are concerned about the transgender trend. And I thought, you know, obviously all criticism of what's going on in, you know, these gender clinics or in regular endocrinology offices and therapist offices, it's like if anyone expresses any level of concern, that's obviously based in transphobia and bigotry. And what was the message I was clearly getting? And so I thought, well, there's obviously very what I see is incredibly dangerous. And, and I feel like I kind of have a get out of jail free card. I've got like this, not just, um, <laughs> you know, like, like I'm, I'm allowed to talk about this in a way, I guess other people will be dismissed as bigots for. Oh um, yeah. Well, you, you've got some spicy takes we'll come to you, mate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the first spicy take you said on a podcast once, you said you spoke about the altar of trans in quote unquote. I'm doing air quotes right now. Explain that for me. <laughs> so... There's this notion that there's some sort of righteousness or, or sacred, like, like there's this, there's an element of this kind of weave through a lot of our culture right now, but it, but it kind of really intersects on all levels in, in the trans conversation is that it's like this very much a religious kind of understanding of what it is to be trans. And mm -hmm. there's a real notion of, the only word I can use is there's a notion of blasphemy now around any sort of criticism about yeah, anything related to to this topic and that's what there's so many levels of it just just keep bringing back to like very cult-like very religious it's all very much policed by yeah like this is the same the same kind of social pressures that policed people or punished people from questioning any theocracy of their culture the same thing's going on now i also you know, think personally isn't it quite patronizing if you believe that all trans people are perfect flawless incapable of doing anything bad it's like, if you don't believe someone's a whole person who has got good and bad, dark and light, isn't that transphobic in itself? Exactly. It's, a, it's, incre <laughs> it's incredibly patronizing. 
It's, um, <laughs> I think the, the first time I experienced this is about 2016, or no, 2015. It's very early days. I didn't know this kind of cultural shift was going on, but my college, it's right before I had graduated and uh, my university was hosting this trans day of remembrance or visibility or something. And so I was like, oh, mm -hmm. I'm trans. I'll go to that thing. Again, it was before I kind of had my, my awakening, but they had this room for the trans people to go into and then a room for the cis allies to go into. And the room for the trans people had coloring books and like scrapbooking art. Holy shit. No joke. No joke. <laughs> it was like, it was like kindergarten. Like, <laughs> like, here's where the kids go and here's where the adults go. <laughs> oh much, my days. And yeah, we were supposed to basically do art about our feelings or whatever. And then the, the cis allies were basically getting lectured on how they should better support us. And I was like, this was 2015, so this was before. Yeah, this was like I a different most... age. Yeah, 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 but still. Yeah, very early days, and that's when I was like, "What?" I was quite offended by it. I was like, that what? is I'm wild. A, I, I'm an adult. That's don't actually need, wild. Like coloring books. Coloring books. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just, all I've got is like visions. Do you know when you used to go to like the doctor's office as a kid and you used to like get a, I don't know if you've got this in America, but you used to like get a, like a magnet and go through like a little course and then there'd be like these little, oh, that's all I've got like just in my head. Just, <laughs> yeah. just like kids' toys yeah. and shit. Yeah, oh like, my God, like that's the, bonkers. The, 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 waiting room for a child's therapy office or something yes yeah, yeah that's yeah. what i've got in my head i can't explain <laughs> yeah. it properly but that's what i've got exactly. in my head yeah. oh my god i wanted to come back to what you're talking about with clinicians and doctors especially in america and you mentioned on a transparency episode this was quite a while ago now that when you encountered other trans people in the wild in air marks mm -hmm. you said something quite astonishing you said some people transitioned with no gender dysphoria at all they told you i'm doing this just to show that i am trans surely alleviating dysphoria, gender dysphoria, sex dysphoria is the point of transitioning. Right, right. And that's why I think a lot of people, I, I didn't know it at the time, but it was, this was 2017 when I first had this conversation. And I think a lot of people still today don't understand that that's been happening. It's been happening since at least 2015, is that people identify with the concept of trans. There is a, a sort of a political philosophy around it, you know, like what I now know is queer theory. Anyway, yeah, so, so what I encountered in 2017 was somebody I knew personally who had had top surgery, so had their breasts removed and uh, male chest construction and had been on testosterone for, I think, two years at that point. And I was explaining on the assumption that they had the same experience of dysphoria that I did. And I was explaining something about what it felt like pre-transition for me, my relationship with my body anyway. It looked at me like kind of horrified that I felt so upset. My mind was is primarily based on my chest. It was, it was really bad. But when I was kind of explaining how, how that felt with the assumption that I was, again, naive and I kind of thought all trans people had the same kind of, kind of, I thought dysphoria was one thing and that we all had it, right? But I've since learned differently by talking to, to many people with different experiences of dysphoria. But at the time, what this person, yeah, they just looked horrified. And I said, well, what did it feel like for you? And they said, well, I never had any dysphoria about my chest. Holy like, shit. Yeah, yeah. And I said, well, then why did you have top surgery? And they said, so people would know I'm trans. Like that. So people would know I'm trans. Like, why else would somebody do this? Like, like a signal rather than, yeah, right, let's say right. signal, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very much like, I want to be part of this political subculture, and in order to do that, I have to transition. It's very oh much... Oh, my God. Yeah, so so that was... I had a lot of feelings. Because I was just shocked. But the person obviously said it. Like, they didn't understand that I didn't know that that's why people transition. So it was like, I couldn't really be offended because I realized the way that they were saying this is it's not just their experience that a lot of people are doing this. And that's what was so terrifying right it's like you understand this to be a normal reason to transition or like how many people are being harmed irreversibly because they've latched on to a political idea like it was very like so i went online and i realized that yes it's very common and it, and i'm uh what's called a true scum or a trans medicalist for believing that gender dysphoria should be necessary to transition in much of the online trans communities were considered like, I'm no longer a trans medicalist because I don't think that there is this one condition that is gender dysphoria and that transition is, the, is the, I did at the time though and I thought that that's what all trans people believed is that we had this one uh, condition that was based on how we uh, how our brain related to our bodies and that we transitioned to fix it was, was what I understood but I went on these online spaces after having that conversation because again I was very much online in the trans spaces around 2010 2012 when I was first transitioning, I needed the resources and, and whatnot, like, how do I go about this, you know, connecting with other people. And they all had that same understanding that I did was that, you know, we have this very deep discomfort in our bodies and transition is how we fix it.
And so after I transitioned, it was just sort of leading my life. I very much went offline. But then after meeting this person in real life and, and meeting, meeting their friends, and suddenly there was a bunch of trans men in my town. I was like, first I was like, oh, sweet, you know. But then, then once I was started talking to them, I realized that something really scary is going on here. And yeah, when I went online, it confirmed it all, that it was a subculture, a, a youth subculture, essentially. Dear God, I mean, that was 10 years ago. I just hope those people are okay because reality, well, no, so reality hits and can... Oh, that was 2017. I mean, that's still... Yeah. Yeah. God. And this person I was talking to was 25 at the time, 23 when they began transition. So not a child, but it is mostly Mm. young people, like younger than that, who are getting wrapped up in this. But yeah, that's what I was thinking exactly. What is this going to look like five, 10 years from now? And now we are five years from that. And we're actually, we're six years from that. And I am coming to you from the Trans Health Summit in San Francisco, where... All that stuff I was reading on the forums back then is still being propagated by health professionals today. I just asked yesterday, what are uh, providers doing to ensure that, you know, the basically cis people aren't, aren't tra- I don't believe that's a real category, but they obviously do. And, you know, what clinicians could do in their assessments, you know, to ensure that cis people weren't transitioning unnecessarily. And they said it's not their job to interfere with anybody's embodiment goals. And these are the people who are writing the guidelines for the American Psychological Association standards of care or guidelines in treating gender diverse, as they put it, patients. And this applies to teenagers, too, is you, you can't tell somebody, you can't ask why somebody wants to transition. You just affirm them and enable them on their, as they put it, embodiment goals. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've spoken with a lot of people who have detransitioned on this podcast Aaron I've spoken to Helena who spoke a lot about rapid onset gender dysphoria mm-hmm. and I've also spoken to Richie I've spoken to a couple of the other boys who are out there and have said they have detransitioned so they're getting more of the spotlight now it's still completely underground to be honest but they're getting more spotlight at least but when it comes to ROGD just to explain for listeners who didn't go back and listen to Helena's podcast what it is why there's so much contention around it, why do some people deny it exists, and what it's causing these girls to feel like. Yeah, Helena's great. We've had her on Transparency as well, and she shed a lot of light into kind of... So with mine, mate, honestly, honestly, there's some things I wish I didn't hear. (laughs) (laughs) The One Direction porn was not something I wanted to hear about, to be honest, but... Oh, yeah. Here we are. So she was great because, like, she... What I, I told her is like, I was an outsider looking in at these communities when I was realizing that all that was going on around 2017, 2018. And she was explaining it to me as one of the ones inside of that. So basically what will happen is it's kind of like these really online girls. Usually they're online, they're highly online for reasons such as like, you know, kind of kind of misfits, kids who maybe don't have much a really vibrant social life, you know, in real life. And they kind of go online and also people with very fixed obsessive interests. I was one of those mm-hmm. people as well. Fandoms. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fandoms. Yeah. Yeah. They'll like kind of gravitate to these, yeah, to these fandoms. And then I think it was around, I don't know when it was better, but I think it was around 2013, 2014, when all those kids, those teenage girls were getting on Tumblr primarily. It was this blogging social media platform that was kind of perfect for like sharing that whole fandom stuff. Cause it's like, stories and then also like fan art and basically you could share in any any kind of format but all of these fandoms like so the harry potter fandom was a big one and that's what's fueling so much of the controversy with jk rowling today but there's all these different fandoms that these kids would kind of go to tumblr for because they were really into harry potter or they were really into one direction (laughs) one direction yeah one direction yeah Yeah. whatever it was that they were they were into they would go and obsess about it with these other girls but it was so much of it was also feeding into this trans content and like a lot of the the fan fiction stories were like making harry a trans boy or something like that it was very much i don't know why that happened i'm sure i've been told at some point what it was that made the trans thing and the fandom stuff get all linked together but they did and so so many of these girls were absorbing this kind of ideology that was built into their fandoms which was you know like being cis is bad they won't directly say that but it's like trans people to the front you know cis hetero people shut up shut up you know? cis people yeah right you know it's like a lot of, lot of that stuff and where it smash like, the cis heteronormative patriarchy exactly exactly yeah. yes all of that was somehow fused in with just this mm. you know this innocent just like kid fandom stuff but 
anyway, not so innocent because a lot of it's like violent porn they make of it. But anyway, Ooh, so, yeah, a lot of dark anyway. anime stuff as well. Helena yeah. talking about, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Helena spelled it out perfectly from her own psychological perspective. You know, being you know a fifteen-year-old in this climate and realizing that if she just changed her pronouns to they on her Tumblr bio, suddenly she's not going to be made fun of for being a cishet girl. You know, it's like now now she's got a seat at the table, right? So it's something like that where it's like you realize that you're being vilified for something that you can't change. And it's like, oh, wait, I can kind of join this group. I can be one of these people who have the mic by basically becoming one of them. And it's really just as simple as saying that you're bisexual or saying that you're whatever. None of it requires any actual lifestyle change, any sort of behavior change. It's and just, most of them are virgins as well. Oh, so. entirely. Most of them have never yeah. kissed anybody, you know, but they're identifying with these micro labels about sexuality and gender because it's so baked into the culture that they've kind of made their entire social network out of. Anyway. It's a dark, dark world, bro. It's a dark, dark world. (laughs) Yeah. And then all the clinicians treating these kids who then go say that they are boys. And it's always an escalation, right? Like, like Elena was explaining, like she changed her pronouns today. And then, you know, she got all this positive feedback from it. It was like, oh, I'm so proud of you. So happy. You're so brave. Love bombing. Yeah. Yeah, Exactly. And then that goes away. It's no longer news. And so she changed her pronouns to he, him. And suddenly you get that again. You know, you get that. Mm. Yeah, that love bombing. And, and it's just like this, and I'm realizing it was around, again, around 2018, I didn't hear it from an insider perspective like Helena's, but I was kind of watching and it, it just made intuitive sense to me that a lonely kid who's not getting much validation in their real life, you see the picture of somebody who posts their post-operative chest and oh, just the, God, the love. It's giving me PTSD, honestly. I've got PTSD already. I feel like I'm getting a new layer of it. I try and mute <laughs> it on, every time I see it on the timeline, mate. But these kids, so these kids are realizing how much love and adoration and attention they'll get if they take these transition steps. And mm. it's absolutely criminal that people aren't realizing what is just normal teenage girls' psychology and this need for community and a normal need to kind of grow up and differentiate yourself by adding a unique mm. identity. It satisfies all of those normal developmental psychological needs. And the people who should know this, the psychologists who should be well-trained in developmental psychology and see this for what it is, are the very people who are writing the hormone prescriptions and surgery letters. Yeah. What I find, you probably have an answer for this, is that I've interviewed you, I've interviewed Aaron Kay, I've interviewed Mars, all of you are trans men, and Buck Angel, obviously. Shout out to Buck. You all have said, we are still female. The point of alleviating gender dysphoria, we knew it was the right choice for us. We did all the work to find out it was the right choice and making sure it wasn't the wrong choice. And we wanted to present as male, as men. Mm-hmm. I don't hear the word men in these conversations. It's no. always boy. Yep, exactly. Exactly. They're not thinking about growing up to be men. And a lot of the transitionals tell you now, it's like it, never, it never occurred to them that they would be men. They were just being cute Tumblr boys. You know, it's like, that's where their mind frame was. It's literally short term. Boy is, you describe a young boy or teenager as. That right. is what the term is. A man yeah. is adult. Right, right. I got a, um, a message from someone, uh, a mother who said that her, her daughter was identifying as a trans boy and was seeking testosterone. And her mom showed her a conversation. One of the first episodes of our podcast, which is me, Aaron Kimberly, our friend Ken and Scott Nugent, all of whom look like middle-aged men just talking about our experience and she and basically the mom said that us talking about the, the complications and whatnot and just the reality of life you know kind of turned her off I, I was like i wonder if that's so much the case as it was just like looking at four people who look like middle-aged men and she's like that's not what i want to be you know like, <laughs> that's a compliment and an insult bro <laughs> <laughs> right? yeah. double-edged sword yeah <laughs> stopped her from doing something stupid but she maybe thought you were old <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll take oh, it. Yeah. Uh. yeah, I want to move on to something that you mentioned earlier in the pod, mate, which is allyship. And I've almost become so like turned off by the term ally now, because what happens in the conversation is that a lot of people on the other side of your debate, they'll speak and fight on behalf of trans people. So sometimes that will mean silencing, bullying, policing people's language, even as you put it, even people like yourself who are gender critical trans people. So, you know, when someone like Buck Angel or Debbie Hayton, they just get it on both sides, but they'll get it from, they'll get it from, without using the, I don't want to get into this terminology, but they'll, they'll get it from straight people who are not trans and they'll call them transphobic. Oh, yeah. I just find it fucking hilarious. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a lot of, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I've, I've been told by uh, straight, yeah, straight people that I have uh, internalized cisgender normativity or, or uh, internalized transphobia and like, 
it's really ridiculous because I, I want to give a lot of people some leeway as well because I think a lot of the people who are really vehement in that regard, they probably have a trans young person in their life. And I'm realizing many of them probably have a trans child or I think a lot of the emotional investment in it has to do with something like that. It's like they are as emotionally invested in this or even more so if it's, if it's their child than your average actual trans activist, mm-hmm. you know? It's one thing if you made a mistake for yourself, but if you made a massive mistake for your child, that's even worse and you're going to be even more doubled down. And yeah, so at first I was like, you people are ridiculous. Like, shut the fuck up. I know what I'm talking about. But then I'm, I, it's kind of it's kind of occurred to me is like that maybe, yeah, yeah, a lot of these probably have trans. There's something happening behind closed doors yeah. or, or just in front of the doors as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. The final question I wanted to ask you about, and it's something you talk a lot about on transparency as well, is language. And you are a biological female, that's obvious, but you it has to be said that you state that openly as well, just to make sure that people know. And you've spoken out about the altering of language when it comes to females. So specifically women, and people can Google this, medical journals, companies, brands, they'll change words like women, or they'll change pregnant women to people, menstruators at most extreme, people with a cervix, mm-hmm. people with something or other, instead of saying woman or pregnant woman or, you know, anything female centric. How do you feel about that? I think it's ridiculous. I think in a lot of medical senses, it's really confusing things and it's detrimental. I don't know. I think a lot of people are offended. I guess I don't have really strong feelings about it other than I think in medical settings, it's incredibly dangerous to be, you know, oblique and to obscure the realities of what anatomy people have based on their sex. Like, I think it's stupid. I don't, I don't know, for tampons being marketed at women, I'm, I'm, I don't feel excluded by that. I can't imagine why anybody feels excluded by, I, I don't know. I just can't wrap my head around the psychology of either being really offended by terms like birthing people or feeling that they're necessary in order for you to not be excluded from the gender you identify as. I don't know. I think both of it, I think a lot of it's just kind of, uh, I don't know. I keep going back to, how those things are playing out in medical settings and that mm-hmm. we're, we're actually, you've got doctor's offices referring to sex assigned at birth and, and things like that, that that's like, this is where it actually matters. And this is just beyond stupid and dangerous. Yeah. I always see a kind of conflict happening. It happens in this country too, where sometimes there'll be like health campaigns and it'll be aimed at women, but they'll try and be inclusive. But I'm like, yeah. you do realize where the conflict's happening here. Right. Like, this is only going one way. Like, you know, I, oh, I'll, I'll use my male privilege in quote unquote marks here because it doesn't normally happen to men. It doesn't, right. don't, I'm not called a person with a testicle right. or, or testicles. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've tried to do it though. I've tried to get it uh, like, well done, old ejaculators. You know, something like that. Oh, know? God. <laughs> Just like anything that kind of brings it to, to, to male, uh, male specific. Uh, You're objectifying thoughts. me, Aaron. Right. You're objectifying me. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting that it doesn't go both ways. Why is that? It's like we'll see it in, in sentences. Like this language is because it would sound ridiculous. Person with a prostate. Like yeah. what the fuck? Yeah. Well, I, I think that sounds less ridiculous than birthing persons. You know, oh, I don't know. God, yeah. yeah. You know. Vagina owners, like it just it all sounds oh, ridiculous. God, no. If I said that, my nan, God rest her soul, was dead. <laughs> she would come out of the grave and yeah. slap me in the face right. if I said that. So. Yeah, rightly so. The only point is, it just it just confuses things in a completely unnecessary way. I don't know. Let's reflect then on this part of your journey. So, what has doing GDA, even for this amount of time, taught you about yourself, and what do you hope to achieve with it going forward? Good question. I, and I realized that when you were asking about the, the GDA time frame, I didn't really answer that because I started with when I uh, kind of flew in. But we've been doing it since July 2021. So going on two years now, what I hope to achieve, and I think we are achieving, is just opening up the conversation. Like just, well, what I wanted to do is I was realizing that gender dysphoria is not one thing and that people transition for very, very different reasons. And I realized that a lot of people who are, again, allies or people in the, in the medical realm treating this population aren't aware of that. And I thought if I just talk to a lot of people and have them tell their own very unique and honest account of their experience with gender dysphoria or lack thereof, their decision to transition, what that's meant for them, it'll reveal how incredibly different this experience is for everybody. And I think that'll really kind of help people understand that we're not just treating one thing and there can't therefore just be one solution to this which I think one solution is harming more people than it's helping, absolutely. Anyway, so if we can tell our stories in a way that's going to help one person realize, one young person realize that this is not a route I need to take or this is not 
a route that's going to help me or, and we've done that. We've gotten messages from a lot of people who are basically saying, I was going to transition. I you know, listened to this episode. I realized, you know, it's not worth it or it's not for me, or I can do this in other ways. Parents saying the same thing of their kids having that experience. It's very rewarding to know that like basically what we've set out to do, which is just to tell the honest reality is having a very drastic impact in people's lives, hopefully for the better. Mm. And you um, are mate. Definitely. Yeah. And yeah, it just feels like, I don't know. I kind of feel like I have a purpose, right? You know, like it's mm-hmm. not, I've always been like, Oh, I just want to you know live my life and not cause harm and just enjoy myself. But it's like now, I mean, this is, again, I'm learning a lot about developmental psychology. And as you're pushing your forties is when we start to think, maybe I need to give back, you know, I need to, I need, <laughs> I need to do something that's going to leave a, that serves a purpose. But anyway, so I, I do feel like I'm, I'm doing more than just existing, you know, and, and trying to enjoy myself as yeah, contributing something positive to the world. And, and there's, yeah, it, it feels, feels really good. We've come to our final topic of conversation, Aaron, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests if we have time. It is a general natter and quick-fire chat about mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health at the moment, mate? I'd say it's really good, actually. Probably one of those people who has the what, seasonal affective disorder, not chronically or seriously, mm-hmm. but, you know, it's like springtime, you know, the sun's out longer. And anyway, generally, my default is, a, is to be in a pretty happy place. I'm usually in a good, good mental state, but yeah, especially now, springtime and summer, yeah, I'm pretty great. And what age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realized that the feelings you're having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? Oh, that's, oh, I don't even know. I've always been a very in-my-head kind of kid. (laughs) (laughs) I remember I was like six or, no, I was probably about eight years old and I was wondering if other people have internal lives like I do or if they're just what we now call NPCs, you know, like. Normies, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, um, yeah, I don't know, I don't know how to answer that. I really don't know when that was. Interesting Mm -hmm. question, Okay. Can you also tell me about the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What did you say? And how did you look back on it? Was it a big moment or a big burden or weight that had been lifted off your shoulders or something quite easy, insignificant and normal to do? I don't have a specific memory of any any sort of, I mean, I, I was an angsty teenager with some angsty teenage goth type friends. So we all talked about our you know <laughs> mental states, even though they were probably much better than we like to pretend they were because we were you know trying to be angsty goth kids. Yeah, I've never really... Um, Shit, sorry, Freddie, I'm terrible at answering these uh, the quick uh, questions. That's all right. I'll, do, I'll just go on to the next question. It's fine. And when it comes to self-care, what positive tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health and help you feel better? Which ones have worked outside of fishing and which ones that you've tried but haven't? Ooh, excellent. Definitely being outside has always been very helpful for me. Being physically active outside is always sort of my go-to. It does the job. Yeah, again, when I was talking about earlier with the whole COVID thing and, and yeah, just being around people, even if I don't want to, like even in the headspace where it's like, I really, really want to be alone. But the reality is after I've been like, just like invited somebody to go on a hike with me or you like go out for a beer. It's like, I, <laughs> I, I dread going and doing it in that headspace. But afterwards, I'm always happy and I always feel better that I've done it. Excellent. What is the best book or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now it can be mental health or self-help related. Doesn't exclusively have to be. It can be any work of fiction. And if you can't think of a book, podcast tv show any piece of popular culture yeah i've never been like a self-help kind of reader i do like stuff that kind of like talks talks about social science issues i've always been a big fan Mm -hmm. of kind of like things that just kind of explain us in our behavior and those i really enjoy when i was younger i was a big fan of thoreau that's something that i would i would would read to feel good at like you know just uh on walden pond I kind of uh, fantasized about uh, about being Henry David Thoreau. And just now that I've gotten older, I've realized it wouldn't have the same appeal to me. I'm realizing now for a lot of reasons. But yeah, when I was younger, it was on Walden Pond. Yeah. My final question is, and this is another broad one, what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds, all walks of life, feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it? I think this is a good question. It's not something that really I think women have a problem with. I, there isn't a stigma, I don't think, around females talking about their mental health. I think I mm-hmm. think what the solve is is to, first of all, for people to stop thinking that men and women have similar mental health experiences or mental health needs, I would say. I think the counseling or the, the therapy realm is really kind of female tailored and doesn't mm-hmm. really. Are you thinking about what opinion will get you cancelled here or not? <laughs> oh, oh, I, I, yeah, I've had so many opinions that would get me cancelled. Yeah, We're yeah, past yeah, that I, point, I think. Yeah, I think, I think destigmatizing just normal masculine but masculine psychology, or um, I'm not sure if that's the word, but like our society is kind of structured in such a way that, that vilifies the inner lives of men. And if males are able to mm-hmm. actually be open and honest about their experiences and their, yeah, their feelings, I think there is definitely a, a thing that is toxic. 
masculinity, which is what arises when masculinity can't actually be expressed in a, in a healthy, uh, positive way. And so, yeah, I guess, yeah, making the mental health field a little bit more uh, accessible to actual males. Yeah, I try to avoid using that term now just because I, I used it very early on in the podcast when I sort of bought into that idea a little bit more. I'm kind of a little bit embarrassed that I used to ask that question now because I just feel like it's not helpful. And I agree with you. I think that therapy is not a silver bullet. We need to be making sure that men feel like they have a range of mm-hmm. options available mm-hmm. to them to help their mental health, not just therapy. You can't just say to all men, go to therapy, you'll find right. it helpful. Right. Because although the, ma- the majority of women might right. do, Men might not. Some men might not even find exactly. talking helpful. They might just go right. go fishing, right. and then they'll feel right. better. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. It's like doing something with somebody in a positive way, and, and yeah, yeah. I'm not. I guess maybe that's why I'm struggling with a lot of these questions. I, as I, I, I am not male, but I am very, very uncomfortable talking about my feelings. I don't know how to talk. Like I like talking about what I do and what I believe and and what I think about things, but talking about feelings is something that yeah, men just aren't comfortable with. And so yeah, exactly. And that's fine. Yeah, and that's yeah. fine. Yeah, you can't. You shouldn't. You shouldn't right. force it. Right. Yeah. yeah. And on that note, Aaron Tarrell, thank you so much for putting so much time aside to talk to me. Thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking Thanks In podcast. Me, it's been great. Well, that's all we've got time for in this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a massive thank you to Aaron for being my special guest on this episode and for checking in with me. I'll chuck some links to where you can follow GDA and Aaron on social media if you want to find out more about his journey, as well as the Transparency podcast. If you are a complete layman and you want to educate yourself on the trans conversation and debate, I would highly recommend it. I'll sign us off by saying thank you to all the vendors who tuned into this episode. If you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media, tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, please consider supporting our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash eventshelpuk or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe or buy a Vent t-shirt. Those links are on our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash eventshelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Vent.